Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, after a week off last week, we're back to reading Mark together. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at what happened the day after Jesus flipped all of the tables in the temple. That next morning, on the walk back into Jerusalem, Peter had pointed out the withered fig tree to Jesus. And when they get to the temple, they are met by a delegation of heavy hitters. So let me read from uh, Mark 11 and 12 for us, and you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 11 and 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word. Um, that we have read and heard together, that we believe is living and active. That we believe all over the world, your people today are hearing it and things are changing, your spirit is working. We think, especially this morning, of our friends, our sisters and brothers at, at Boulevard Presbyterian Church who met this morning for the first time as a new church. Father, we ask that you would use this word that we have read and heard together to show us the grace of Jesus and to change us by it again. 
And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I think uh, I have told some of you this story before, so if you've heard it before, I hope you'll be patient with me. It is a story about one of my friends. And uh, while he was in graduate school, um, as is often the case, he had the opportunity to teach a bunch of undergraduate classes. And this is what he would do sometimes on the first day of class. Um, on the first day, instead of walking to the front of the class and introducing himself, he would uh, walk in and sit down quietly just among all of the other students. Now this is a guy who's been blessed with one of those um, perpetually young looking faces and so he blended right in and none of them uh, ever assumed he was anyone other than just one of them. So he'd sit there and he would listen to the conversations going on around him. I'm sure he heard uh, a bunch of inane stuff, just first day of class chatter, stuff like that. But occasionally, he would hit pay dirt. And by pay dirt, I mean he would hear about himself. <laughs> he would hear them talking about him, right? They would say, oh, I heard this guy's really good. Some people would say no. I heard he's no good at all, or they'd say he's strange, or no, I think he's cool, or he's boring, or this class is awful, stuff like that. Now, I don't have any idea, really, why he wanted to do that, but I think it's awesome because that moment was always going to come. <laughs> that moment was always going to come, and he would stand up and stride to the front of the class and open his notes and introduce himself. And I always wished I could be a fly on the wall in that moment. Can you imagine <laughs> the confusion and the fear that would have registered in some of those students' eyes in that moment? When they realized all at once that this guy who had just been sitting with them, listening to every single word they've said is really their professor, right? They'd have to hit the old rewind button in their brains. They'd have to scramble to remember if they had said anything goofy or weird or dumb or even worse, if they had said something bad about him, you know, had they just messed up their whole semester? Were they going to have to go to the registrar and drop the class? It was kind of a jerky thing for my friend to do, but I'm sure it was super fun. And what I want to say is that those students running scared are a great window into the minds of those guys who come to meet Jesus in the temple that day. Now, don't get me wrong. By every accounting of things, they are in complete control of pretty much everything. And more than that, they had a good idea of who Jesus was. They had a category for Jesus, a box that they had him in, and it was really far away from them. But now he's done this thing in the temple that makes it look for all the world that he is not exactly who they thought he was, that he doesn't fit into that category anymore. Jesus has stood up and he's walked to the front of the classroom and he's introduced himself. And listen, this doesn't make those guys angry. This doesn't make those guys laugh. They don't brush it off. It makes them terrified. They are terrified. They are scared. 
And so fear starts driving them. It starts animating. It becomes this animating energy in their lives. And it determines what they do for the rest of that week. And I bet that there isn't one of us here, if we're being honest, starting with me, who can't relate to that feeling. That feeling of being afraid and letting it drive the things we do and say. So Mark has identified these guys as the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. Now those three groups working together, as they often did in this group called the Sanhedrin, I mean those, those three groups working together had a lock on the common life of God's people. I mean, they controlled the temple, they oversaw the resolution of all the legal disputes that ever happened in the land, and they controlled and administered all of the political affairs and all of the financial affairs of the country, and they did it in collusion, hand in hand, with the Roman overlords of the time, the occupiers. So by all accounts, these guys were the guys who were in complete control of absolutely everything. And so a delegation made up of these three groups would have carried all of that weight and all of that authority. And just seeing them make their way through the temple courts would have made people sit up straight and keep their noses clean and pay attention. And these guys are making a beeline to Jesus because they have a couple questions for him. By what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Now, they are talking about what Jesus had done in the temple the day before. And if you were here two weeks ago when we talked about it, you might remember the story. Jesus had turned over the tables of the money changers and the people that were selling animals. And even more important than that, he had stopped everything from happening in the temple. It just went quiet for a few pregnant moments. And even more than that, once everything was quiet and he had everyone's attention, he spoke words of judgment against the temple. And he used some of the fieriest Old Testament prophetic words to do it. In that moment, Jesus wasn't hoping to cleanse the temple. He wasn't hoping to purify it. He wasn't trying to shine it up a little bit and restore it to its former glory. In that moment, Jesus was saying, the time for this place has expired. And those guys, those three groups of people, they understood what Jesus was doing probably better than most other people who were there that day. They heard him and they knew what he meant. And that is the first time that Mark tells us they're afraid. They fear him now. And they have been stewing in that fear all night. And now they come to Jesus the next morning and this is why they ask him, essentially, who do you think you are? You waltz in here from your no-place, third-rate, backwater hometown. You're followed by this silly band of fishermen and tax collectors and beggars and harlots and nobodies. And you act like you own the place? Who do you think you are? See, what they think is if they can undercut his credentials, especially in front of the people, that they can silence him, which turns out to be a really bad plan 
because Jesus has a question for them and a promise attached to the question. I'm going to ask you a question, he says, and if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. So Jesus asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So I hope you remember old John the Baptist. The last time we talked about him was a couple of months ago, and we talked about his untimely death, his gruesome death at the hands of Herod. But before that, John had come to announce Jesus' coming. He had gone out into the wilderness and he had told everyone who would listen to him to get ready for the one who was coming after him. And maybe more important, more pertinent to this particular moment, John called people out away from Jerusalem. <laughs> he called people out away from the capital city, away from the temple and all that happened in the temple and all the stuff that was supposed to happen in the temple, away from that triad of authorities in the temple. He just said, I don't have any use for Jerusalem. Come out here, away from all of that, into the wilderness and be baptized. <laughs> Get ready because the kingdom of God is coming. So. Jesus' question is amazing. <laughs> I mean, first, it's amazing because even though he's dead, these guys cannot stand the fact that John ever existed. Everything he had ever done was a thumb in their eye. So, of course, this question is going to mess them up. But that's not the only reason that Jesus' question is amazing. It's amazing because in asking it, Jesus has given them the answer to their question. He has hidden the answer to their question in his question. Here's what I mean by that. You remember, right, when John baptized Jesus? <laughs> there was a voice, this voice boomed out of heaven and said, you are my beloved son and I'm pleased with you. That's who Jesus is. That's where his authority comes from. Mark has let us in on that. We know that. That's who he wants us to see that Jesus is. That's who he wants us to believe Jesus is. Well, so what are these guys going to do? Well, Mark says they have a little sidebar to discuss it. They say, wow, if we say John's baptism was from God, then everyone is going to wonder why we didn't go out to him and be baptized by him. They'll look like fools. But if we say that John was just making this stuff up, which is what they really think, that's what they really believe, then they're in danger of falling from the grace of the crowds because the crowds love John. And Mark now here for the second time in as many days tells us what is behind all of this. He tells us they were afraid. Fear on top of fear. And you know, it's not hard to figure out why. It's not rocket science to figure out why they were afraid. They had everything. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then that threatens everything. And this is where we come back to something that we have seen 
again and again in Mark's gospel as we have been reading it. Faith and fear side by side. See, for Mark, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. That's how we think of it. We think of the opposite of faith as doubt. But for Mark, and I would say more often in just regular human life, the opposite of faith is fear. They're terrified they're going to lose their positions in life. They're terrified they're going to lose that great place that they have achieved. They're terrified they're going to lose all of the prestige they have gained, all of the comfort in which they sit. And that terror becomes the driving force in their lives. It drives them into everything else they do the rest of that very week, which we know ends with them begging the Romans to kill Jesus. And like I said, I, I think if we're being honest, pretty, pretty much every one of us here can relate to having fear be an animating force in our lives. I know I can. You know, we, we fear not being cool enough or not being pretty enough or not being fit enough or not being smart enough. And you know, when we are afraid, we let that fear drive us to do all kinds of things, to say and to be all kinds of things that are hurtful and damaging. You know, we fear missing out, missing out on something, missing out on anything, missing out on everything. And so we run around in our absurdly overfull lives. <laughs> and we wonder why our spiritual selves are about a half inch deep. We fear that we won't have enough or that we won't be able to get enough. And so we keep piling all of the resources we ever get into these goofy little storehouses that we build and we forget all about our neighbors. We fear being alone or we fear being unloved. And so we recklessly pursue intimacy that dead ends into sadness and guilt and shame. We fear not being heard. We fear that we will not be respected. And so we yell so loud, we yell so loud in our friendships and in our families and we yell so loud to the whole world on our social media and in doing it we become brittle shells, angry shells of who we were really made to be. We fear being forgotten. So we burn the candle at both ends to create some kind of legacy and our family and friends get churned underneath in the wake behind us. We fear that we're gonna get hurt, maybe hurt again and so we hold people away with our sarcasm and our cynicism. Church, what I want us to hear this morning is that Jesus invites us into something better than that. 
He invites us into something more beautiful and more lasting than all of that because he invites us to faith in him. Here's what I mean. I mean that when he invites us to faith in him, he invites us to the peace, into that place of peace where we find our identity as daughters and sons of the Father who loves us with an unending, unshakable love. Jesus invites us into the rest of a home, the rest that we can find only in the home where we hear, only because our lives are hidden with Jesus, we hear the same words that he heard from God. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son, and I am pleased with you. And church, listen, when we believe that, and when we believe it enough to begin to live out of the truth about who we are, then the things that we fear, they start to threaten us less and less. And their power over us, it genuinely weakens. And the things that we fear, they get smaller and smaller and smaller until they find their proper place in our lives. And that fear that has so powerfully animated us, even when we don't want it to, it gets replaced by faith working itself out through love. That is the life that every one of us in here has been made for. Every one of us. And Jesus is inviting all of us into it. Maybe some of us here this morning for the first time ever, and others of us here this morning to enter back into that life of faith again after being away or running away. Will we follow him in repentance and faith? And that, you better believe, that is the life that he is calling these guys into. Imagine what it would have been like if they really tried to grapple with his question, but they are so balled up with fear that they won't be honest with him or themselves. And they say, Jesus, you know, we have no idea. We have no idea where John's baptism came from, and so Jesus doesn't answer them. What he does do is start telling them a story. (laughs) Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Jesus starts to go on about a guy who made a vineyard. And when Jesus does this, As soon as he starts using these words, it would have been like loud bells and sirens and alarms for everyone who's around to know, okay, now Jesus is telling a story about God and his people. And they would have known that because it's all over the place in the Old Testament. God makes a vineyard and the vineyard is his people. It's like our Old Testament lesson this morning from Isaiah, a well-known parable, a love song about God making a vineyard on a fertile hill, and they are his people. Well, after a few sentences, after that opening line, Jesus' story veers from Isaiah's script, and he tells his own vineyard story that fits this moment perfectly. Jesus says, the man who planted the vineyard went to another country, and he left the responsibility of caring for the vineyard to some tenant farmers. And so the harvest season arrived, and of course the owner wants to get some of the harvest for himself, So the owner sends a servant and another servant 
and the servant after servant after servant, and it turns into a horror show. In this escalating spiral of violence, they either kill or beat all of the servants. But, Jesus says, he still had one person he could send. <laughs> Listen to who he is, the beloved son. So the owner sends the beloved son into the vineyard, and we better stop right now and ask, what kind of father sends his son into that kind of chaos and madness? And while we're asking questions, we ought to ask ourselves, what kind of son willingly walks into that chaos and madness? What kind of relationship does this father and son have? What are they up to? Why would they do this together? Well, Jesus says the son goes, and of course the tenants plot to kill him too. This is what they think. They hatch this scheme. Listen, they say, this is the heir, and if we kill him, the inheritance will be ours, which is their way of saying, hey, this is probably part of what this guy's going to get when his dad dies anyway, so if we kill him, maybe we'll get it. And you know there's only, one, there's only one way that plan could make sense. And it only makes sense if the father really doesn't care at all about the vineyard. You know, and they think to themselves, listen, <laughs> he, he has sent servant after servant and we killed him and beat him all and sent him all back empty-handed. I mean, this guy's a joke. He's a fool. He's been an absentee landlord. He's weak. He obviously doesn't care, so... Let's take advantage of him again. And it works, unless, of course, they're wrong about the father. What if the vineyard is the thing that matters most to the father? What if he would do absolutely anything to see it flourish and bear fruit? What if he is not foolish or weak, but instead gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness? What if all the servants that he had sent were evidence not that he's weak, but that he is filled with long-suffering compassion and grace? What if sending his son was not the pinnacle of foolishness, but the pinnacle of his prodigal love. And what if the son, what if his willingness to walk into that kind of place was not because he was ignorant of what he was headed into, but because he was resolutely committed to serving and to giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, I, I know that I probably don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to make sure that I do. <laughs> this is most definitely the angle Jesus is working in the story, and it is about as thinly veiled as tissue paper. Everybody gets what it is that Jesus is saying, especially the really powerful guys who are standing there listening to the story. I love Mark's understatement. They perceived that he told the story against them. <laughs> they were the tenants. They were the ones who had become a twisted and tragic parody of what the leaders of God's people were supposed to be. 
And even though God had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, they had tangled God's vineyard into this horrible mess. And so the father has to send the son that he loves. And Jesus is screaming at the top of his lungs for anyone who will hear, that's me. The question is, will those guys believe? And do we believe? Well, the parable ends with the tenants killing the son and throwing him out of the vineyard. It is a bitter foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the very end of this week in Jesus' life. So yes, the shadow of the cross looms large over the story that Jesus is telling, but he wants to make sure that we know. We have to be absolutely clear. Jesus wants us to know that is not the tragic ending of the story. It is the magnificent and beautiful beginning of the story. Have you not read in scripture, Jesus says, and he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is God's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The son that was killed, the son thrown out of the vineyard has become through the power of his resurrection and ascension, he has become the cornerstone of God's new world, of the, our world, <laughs> the world we live in, church. And that means that all of us who have followed him in repentance of faith, maybe to our surprise, hopefully a little bit to our surprise, that means that we have become those living stones built around the cornerstone who together become, as we heard in our New Testament lesson, the household of God. We are the place where God lives in this world. Is this marvelous in our eyes? Well, how we answer that question is completely tied. It is completely tied to this insistent drumbeat of a question that Jesus is pressing as hard as he possibly can during that final week. Who is he? Is he the beloved son or not? God, give us all ears to hear. Let me pray for us. Father, please, in whatever way that you are going to do it, in all of the means at your disposal, which are at times mysterious and surprising to us, help us to have ears to hear, every one of us in here. Ears to hear and eyes to see and the hands to cling in faith to our elder brother Jesus and to believe that he is the beloved son. And we ask that you would do that so that we could find that the things that we fear that drive so much of what we do, that they would be weakened and lessened and put away in our life so that we could in turn walk around everywhere in this broken world in faith working itself out in love. Father, do that for our good. Do that for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.